Good morning. I'm Avery. Um, our scripture is 1 Peter 3, 9 through 17. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we want Psalm 34, which is quoted here, to be true of us. We desire to love life and see good days. Uh, we desire that for ourselves. Uh, we desire that for our city and our world. And so would you train in us hearts which keep our tongues from evil, keep our lips from speaking deceit, help us to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it. Uh, we have lots of prayers, and this psalm promises that your ears are open to our prayers when we do those things, um, but your face turns away from us when we don't. And so I pray that we would take that to heart, um, but we are both hopeful at the promise of you listening to us and hearing us and offering us good days, but we uh, recognize our own sinfulness, we recognize our weakness, and so by the power of the resurrection of Christ, would you make us a people like this? Uh, would you conform us to your will? Would you make us like Jesus? Uh, would you do that even today? Um, would you change us uh, a little bit from one degree of glory to another, change us inside, um, so that we can be faithful witnesses, uh, because to this we've been called to be a blessing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. My wife's favorite author is Wendell Berry. Favorite, right? Yeah. Uh, he is uh, a farmer, poet, prophet uh, guy who lives in rural Kentucky on a farm. And he was born and raised there on land that his family had farmed for five generations. Uh, but he achieved early success as a writer and left for about 10 years following college. First he studied at Stanford, then he was a Guggenheim Fellow in France and Italy, and finally he landed uh, at NYU teaching English. So it's a pretty successful uh, career uh, for somebody with such humble roots. But then at 30 years old, I think like 19, end of the 1960s, uh, he quit NYU, he quit New York City to go back to his tiny hometown. Uh, for a while, it seemed like he planned to quit writing, too, um, at least all the hustle and uh, showbiz portion of that. He bought a farm near his parents' land, where he hoped to retire to the banks of a river to work the land with horses. 
uh, to watch ducks and to live quietly. But 10 years into that quiet life, uh, in 1978, he wrote a letter to a friend. And he said, living at peace is a difficult, deceptive concept. Same for not resisting evil. You can struggle and battle yourself, resist evil until you become evil. As anti-communism becomes totalitarian, I have no doubt of that, but I don't feel the least bit of an inclination to lie down and be a rug either. And I now begin to ask myself if I can live at peace only by being reconciled to battle. I am, I believe, a nonviolent fighter, but I am a fighter. And I see with considerable sorrow that I am not going to get done fighting and live at peace in anything like the simple way I once thought I would. So how to keep from becoming evil? That's a fantastic question. How to keep from becoming evil? If you have to fight, how do you fight without becoming evil? This, in many ways, is the question behind 1 Peter. Uh, because living at peace as a Christian in their circumstances was not going to be simple. It wasn't going to be easy. Placed as they were in a hostile culture, entangled in difficult relationships, peace was complicated. Um, and so Peter offers Psalm 34 as a mission statement for the Christian. Um, whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's all of us, right? Uh, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Notice how Psalm 34 assumes that good days won't just happen. Uh, it takes resolve. Verse 11 challenges us to turn away from evil and do good, and that implies that evil will always be on offer. We'll always have to turn away from it, to choose against it. Doing good requires a conscious choice. Peace has to be searched out, and once it's found, it must be pursued. This is Wendell Berry's conundrum. Initially, he tried to pursue peace by running away from the fight, by fleeing NYU, by fleeing New York City, fleeing capitalism. That's his uh, big enemy, uh, is capitalism, Wendell Berry. Um, but the fight kept coming to him. Like, the strip malls kept coming to him, the um, agrarian agro-business, all the things that he hated just kept coming into his way, and to the point where it would have been wrong in his conscience for him not to fight. He had to engage that conflict. And this is the experience of the first century Christian. They are not seeking out controversy. The Christians here aren't looking for a fight. Uh, yet controversy keeps finding them. They aren't revolutionaries, but people think they are when they refuse to comply with the culture around them. They keep being asked to compromise their faith in Christ, their holiness toward God, to worship idols, participate in injustice, and they are maligned when they simply resist. But they have to resist. And so they ask the Apostle Peter, how do we resist evil without ourselves becoming evil? This was such an important question for Christians in the first century, and it's also an important question for us today. Uh, some big news this week at the Supreme Court, uh, a draft opinion, I don't know if you read this, a draft opinion was leaked and published by the press, and the opinion, if it remains unchanged, would overturn Roe v. Wade, making abortion no longer a guaranteed constitutional right. It would be up to states to legislate uh, its legality. And that is a big deal, but the leak was unprecedented. 
there has never been a leak like this, of this magnitude, uh, from the Supreme Court, a full draft opinion. Um, normally, the process of the Supreme Court is they you know, hear uh, oral arguments, they read briefs, and that's a very public thing. You can listen to the oral arguments, you can read the briefs, but then they deliberate privately, and they would do that for months. Um, and, and usually the process is like this, where they have oral arguments, they deliberate a little bit, and then they take an initial vote, and then they find, is there a majority here? And someone in that majority is elected to write an initial draft opinion. And so in this case, Alito was elected to do that. But then um, that initial draft is going to be distributed. The author's going to get feedback. He's going to adjust it to try to maintain the majority. Um, but it might not work. And so it might shift where that opinion that we read on Monday um, might still be the majority opinion, it might turn into the dissenting opinion, it might uh, be uh, a concurrence. That's the process, but the leak completely disrupts that process or makes it really hard to maintain. Uh, first, it makes life super noisy for the justices outside the Supreme Court. And so last night, there were protesters outside the homes of the Chief Justice, Alito, a few of the others, Kavanaugh, I think, people screaming at their family and children all through the night. Um, and so that's really hard. Um, that's really tough for them. It's hard to think clearly. It also sows distrust within because we don't know who the leaker is. Um, and so think about how you're having to work with these people if over this months-long process and you don't know who did this um, or why. No one does uh, know who did it. Not yet. They'll investigate and see if they find it. Um, it's not even obvious which side of the opinion the leaker was on. Um, was it a pro-choice clerk uh, who wanted to stir up public dissent in an effort to sway moderate justices? Um, was it a pro-life law clerk or a staffer who liked this opinion and didn't want it to change, and so they want it to be out there immediately? No one knows. Um, I am uh, pro-life. Uh, convictionally against abortion, uh, except for certain circumstances. Uh, I am pro-life because of my faith. Um, I believe abortion is against the logic of Jesus and the kingdom, not to mention natural law. The historic Judeo-Christian position has always been against abortion. Uh, one of the ways the early church distinguished itself was by its commitment to rescue abandoned babies. Um, mostly girls and disabled children, and raising them as their own. Uh, the church was truly the first feminist movement, rescuing girls, um, believing baby girls were equal in worth to baby boys. I'm also pro-life because of my personal experience. Um, May is Foster Child Awareness Month. Uh, we partner with Foster the City. Uh, foster, uh, the foster system is vitally important. Megan overbuilt foster parents in Texas. And Trinity was born in a hospital less than two miles away from one of the largest Planned Parenthoods in the country. And she was in utero, uh, lived very close to Planned Parenthood um, with her birth mother. And everything about her circumstances, everything, would have suggested Trinity should be aborted. Yet her mother chose life for her. And I am forever grateful for that decision. Spend a day with Trinity 
and you immediately recognize that her birth mother made the morally correct choice in preserving her life. For all that it cost her birth mother, for all that it cost Trinity, the state of Texas, to us, given the choice, 1 Peter 3.17 stands, that it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will than for doing evil, it is always, always better. I try to be sympathetic to the stories and the reasoning of uh, pro-choice folks, um, but I remain decidedly pro-life. That said, if it was a pro-life individual who leaked the Supreme Court opinion last week, I would say that in resisting evil, they became evil. If it was a pro-choice individual who leaked the opinion, they too, in resisting what they thought was evil, truly, genuinely thought was evil, became evil. And that dynamic happens constantly in our justice-oriented culture. In politics, in business, in culture, in neighborhoods, people regularly repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling. And they feel justified in doing so. They feel compelled to do it. I'm sure that the person who leaked it, unless it was somebody who sold it for some money, but more likely than not, it was somebody who felt passionately about the injustice that was about to happen, whatever side. And they felt compelled to do this. And they resisted evil to the point of becoming evil. And we see that all the time where people are unkind they shame, they marginalize, they hurt, they steal, they commit felonies. And they do it in a way that is justifiable, depending on the circumstances, according to them. Adam, last week, sort of flipped to the other side, recounted January 6th, where some Christians, I'm sure, genuinely felt like they were resisting evil, right? That's, that's what they felt like they were doing, but they became evil in the process. Uh, and Psalm 34 warns them and us Quoted here in 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So that even if the people storming the Capitol were right about what they were protesting, the election was stolen or whatever it might be, the moment they resisted evil by becoming evil, 1 Peter 3.12 says that the face of the Lord turned against them. Any prayers they offer to God from inside the Capitol, God did not hear them. No matter how just their cause might have been, his ears were not open to their prayers. It is a disservice to the cause of Christ to repay evil for evil. Not only that, it's a disservice to our own flourishing. If you want to see good days, then do not repay evil for evil. If you desire to love life, do not revile those who revile you. For the Christian, the means are just as important as the ends. The means are just as important as the ends. In fact, for me, really, they are more important because it is the only thing that I can control. I cannot control the ends. God controls the ends. All I can control is what I do today, the means. This is, of course, easier said than done. Not becoming evil is hard. That's what Wendell Berry was wrestling with. 
Um, and it's often because not becoming evil, not reviling when you're reviled, it looks like losing. It feels like losing. Being kind, being good feels weak. And so the Apostle Peter writes this letter to Christians who definitely felt like they were losing, for sure. And they were going to feel like they were losing for a long time, for a few hundred years. To assure them that, in fact, you are not losing. 1 Peter 2.6, whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. That is a fact. Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. You aren't losing. And so he writes to the mistreated slave, to the silenced spouse, to the abused citizen. God sees you and you are winning because Christ is king. But how do we keep believing that? How do we live like that? And so our passage today offers us advice on how to fight without becoming evil. How to disagree without becoming evil. It looks like losing often, but it's actually winning. And so there are five points here. Be zealous for what is good. Watch your tone. Don't be afraid or intimidated. Remember Christ and speak what you know. And so we're just going to walk through these. None of this is revolutionary or rocket science, but it's such a good, like, refreshing thing to receive um, and to remember uh, in our public witness. First, be zealous for what is good. 1 Peter 3.13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? First uh, Peter is mostly addressing unjust suffering, but throughout the book, he regularly stops and asks the Christian to make sure their suffering isn't warranted, that they're not just being jerks um, or evil themselves. So back in 2.20, it says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In 1 Peter 4, he does the same thing. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. And so he wants us to always pause in our suffering and to ask, like, am I suffering for good reason? Like, am I a murderer or a meddler, an evildoer? Um, I want to pause and, and ask myself that question. Um, and he's doing that same thing here in verse 13. If you're suffering, make sure it's for good reason. Uh, while there is definitely unjust suffering in the world, generally speaking, zeal for goodness is honored. Um, it is attractive. And so it should proverbially lead to blessing. If not by humanity, then definitely by God. And if God honors you, no one can ultimately harm you. And so Christians should be zealous for what is good. And this is not just about being zealous for good generally, uh, but being zealous for good in conflict itself. Um, it's not enough for me to be a nice guy at home or at work and be nasty online. And say, you know, that happens a lot, where somebody is just really terrible in argument, in conflict, but you're like, but he's so nice over here, he does good things, or he like feeds the homeless over here. That's not enough. We wanna be zealous for good even in conflict, even in disagreement. Um, that is godly. Even the Gentiles are nice at home, right? Um, if we wanna be zealous uh, for good towards enemies. We want to be above reproach when we argue. The late uh, theologian Roger Nicole 
uh, wrote a famous article on polemical theology, how to deal with those who differ from us. And he um, is notorious for being sweet and kind, which is just really wonderful uh, to have those uh, figures uh, in history. And he begins this article on how to deal with difference with three questions, which he says must be asked precisely in this order. How, what do I owe the person who differs from me? What can I learn from the person who differs from me? And how can I cope with the person who differs from me? And most of us in disagreement just jump to the third one, just like, how do I, how do I deal with this person? How do I win this argument? But he says, no, first, you have to ask yourself, what do I owe him? What do I owe her? And then what can I learn from the person? Um, zeal for good requires first reckoning with our obligation to love others, even enemies. Love means, and love in conflict, in disagreement, means putting the work in to understand the other's point of view. I need to engage honestly what they've said. I need to engage honestly what they mean, what they intended, not exploiting missteps when somebody just doesn't speak carefully and be like, aha, you know, like, no, what I, I want to listen, what do they mean by what they say? What are they intending? To take the pro-choice movement, for example, man, there are really well-reasoned arguments in favor of legalized abortion. There, it is trying to address real concerns. Um, and to be zealous for good means I need to hear those reasons. I need to hear and listen and acknowledge, even when I don't agree um, with the conclusion, I need to know them well enough to be able to restate, restate them in a favorable way so that, so that the other side will agree and say, yes, you have understood. To be zealous for good means that um, it's my responsibility to acknowledge those reasons and to credit their compassion, to credit their goodness, even to join forces with them to address stigma and inequality, grief and trauma. What do we owe the person who differs from us? What does love look like in disagreement? I also need to ask myself what I can learn from them. Could I be wrong? I need to approach conversations aware that my pro-life stance could be, could be wrong. And I need to be able to, there needs to be signals where you know that I'm approaching that conversation in good faith, that I'm listening. What are the facts? Am I missing something? What are the dangers? What are the ambiguities? Our culture and the technology that drives our culture works against this kind of engagement. It's almost impossible. Like, it, like I'm, I'm saying all these things and it's like hard to know how do we put them into action. Um, but that shouldn't, the difficulty shouldn't matter to us because we're zealous for good. We care deeply about good, and so we're willing to work hard for it. We're willing to do most of the work for it, to do the work for the other person because we have zeal. We go above and beyond in our disagreement to be good in disagreement. We do good even when it hurts our position, even when it weakens our voice. Because we acknowledge complexity, we acknowledge difficulty, we give credit where credit's due. Um, that is zeal for the good. Second, we have to watch our tongue when we defend ourselves. First Peter 3.15, do it with gentleness and respect. And so you want to do your homework, um, uh, but when you're asked to speak, be kind. Bring more light than heat. Um, and not just light, bring 
joy, bring affection, bring hopefulness. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 25.15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. If, if, you, if we really care about our cause, then we're going to want to speak effectively in it. And so how many opportunities for persuasion have we wasted because we didn't respond with gentleness and respect? Um, and for what? Like, why do I bring that snide comment? Like, why do I have this zinger that I've been, like, holding, to, holding in, ready to do? It's for my own vindication, right? It's, it's for myself. It's self-serving. It does no good for the cause that I care about. It does no good for the glory of Christ. The gospel is our vindication. Christ is Lord. Huh. I've said this um, a few times, I think, but... Man, be wary of Christian thinkers who are proud and mean-spirited. Even if you agree with them, especially if you agree with them. Man, it's, it's not just that they're mean and you shouldn't listen to mean people. Nastiness is a sign of stupidity. It is an intellectual vice. Like, anyone who is mean is not a good thinker. There's like something else going on that is clouding them from the truth. They may be, I'm not saying that they aren't saying the true thing. They might be, but it should give you great pause. This is not a trustworthy person. In their pride, in our pride, we reveal that we're after more than the truth. And as Christians in the city, let us be mindful of our tone, always addressing people with gentleness and respect. I want to name that I don't um, assume that everyone here is pro-life. Like, I, um, I recognize that there is an unfairness in me having the microphone and being able to say that from here. Um, one of the best ways to practice this kind of engagement is within the church because we love each other. And so I do want to invite disagreement so that we know how to like differ in a way that celebrates Jesus that um, honors him as Lord of our life and, um, and get good at it here because we're covenanted to one another and so that we're especially good out there when we're, not, when we're engaging somebody who's not covenanted to us, who doesn't love us in the same way that we love one another. So I want to name that. So first, be zealous for what is good. Second, uh, watch your tone. Third and fourth, don't be afraid or intimidated and remember Christ. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Why is the world today so angry? Why don't people take the time to listen and understand? If you ask anyone on any side, they would say that's the, that's the way to be, right? To, to take time to listen, to articulate, in a safe environment. Um, no one thinks anger and hostility is a good thing, and yet we all think it's necessary for today, that there's something about today that warrants anger, that warrants um, impatience. Why do people do that? It's because they're afraid. It's because of fear. Um, I read a line from George MacDonald this morning that um, fear 
encourages us to agree with our fears. Like that when we're afraid and we run away, we're agreeing with our fears. We're afraid of what might be taken from us. We're afraid of being exposed, being taken advantage of, being hurt. We're afraid of evil in others, and so we become evil. And so all the protests this week on both sides, there is an element of fear. You, you can hear it in their voices. You can hear it in their chants. There is true fear. And we think that the best defense is a good offense. That's not what Jesus does, though. The best defense is not a good offense in Jesus. Like, watch the trial of Christ. Like, that is not the way that he goes about his life. And so if Christians are to be zealous for good and to always speak with gentleness and respect, we have to refuse fear and intimidation. The only way we can possibly love our enemies is if we're not afraid of them. You can't love someone that you're afraid of. Because we realize like Psalm 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Who is there to harm me if I'm zealous for what's good? You can't love people you're afraid of. You can't love people who intimidate you because that immediately focuses my attention on myself. But how do we refuse fear and intimidation? We refuse it by honoring Christ the Lord as holy. That's the contrast in this verse, right? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. How do we turn from fear? We honor Christ the Lord. That's the fourth reason, which goes hand in hand with the third. Remember Christ. The opposite of being afraid and, and intimidated is trusting Christ the Lord as holy. Letting the reality of the gospel speak louder than the reality of the person in front of me. Remembering that Jesus is the Christ. He's the sent one, the anointed Savior who came, died, and rose again for the redemption of God's people. Remembering that Jesus is Lord. Right? He is sovereign over everything, even our enemies, even our suffering. Not only that, as Lord, he is judge. Paul, it's, it's so wild. He says, man, I don't even defend myself. Right? I just know that I'm going to stand before the Lord. He will defend me. He will judge me. He is my judge. God, is, his eyes are on the righteous. My allegiance is owed to him. I should not be afraid of others. I should be afraid of him. We remember that Jesus is the Christ, that he's Lord. We remember that Jesus is holy, fully good, completely trustworthy, fully committed to finishing the good work he began in me, to finish the good work he began on this earth. There is no situation whereby I am left behind. There is no situation whereby I am truly harmed. And so all my fears need to be set alongside that awesome truth. And so if you find yourself afraid at work, at home, with a friend or acquaintance, remember Christ the Lord is holy. Honor him in your heart as Christ Lord and holy. You have everything you need in him, and so you can be zealous for good. You can speak with gentleness and respect. You don't have to put your thumb on the scale. You can, you can do what's right. You don't have to try and win safety for yourself. You can turn from evil and do what's good. And when people notice that you fight differently than other people fight, that you engage difference peacefully, with kindness and optimism, believing that everything's gonna turn out well even though it looks like you're losing, they're gonna ask you for the reason 
the hope for the hope that is in you, which is the fifth point to speak what you know. If you read closely First uh, Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Notice that they don't ask about your argumentation, your reasoning ability, your proof. Those things are surely important. That's sort of in the zeal for what is good, that we would be like skillful thinkers and uh, well-thought-out people. Um, but that's not what people notice. That's not what they ask. They ask about the hope that is in you. And so you don't have to be an apologist or a philosophy major to obey 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, you just have to be ready with what you know. Ready with the hope that is in you. You don't need to offer the hope that is in me. And so you don't need to think like, what would, what would Dave say? What would Maggie say? What would Avery say? You offer the hope that is in you. It's disingenuous to sort of like bring in somebody else's spiel. Why do you hope in Christ? And it's gonna be, your answer is gonna be some version of the fact that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. He is Lord and he is holy. That is all of our hopes. And so when people ask, I mean, how is it that in conflict you continue to be zealous for what is good when it doesn't pay off? You refuse fear and intimidation. You answer with gentleness and respect even when it makes you look weak. And the answer you're going to give is what you know. And it's some version of what we said in our hearts, that Christ the Lord is holy. Your hope is not in yourself. It's not in your rightness. It's not in your goodness. It's in Jesus Christ. Your faith in the truth that he's God, that he came, died, rose again, and now sits as Lord of all, and that he's good and gracious too. That's what gives you hope. That's what gives us hope. That's what drives and shapes and colors our fight. In Wendell Berry's letter, as he muses on how to fight without becoming evil, he goes on to say, maybe the answer is to fight always for what you particularly love, not for abstractions and not against anything. Don't fight against even the devil and don't fight to save the world. Don't you wish you had a friend who wrote letters like this to you? Uh, <laughs> we should write letters. Um, <laughs> This is a helpful paragraph. Maybe the answer is to fight always for what you particularly love. And so who are you fighting for? Not what, not abstractions, and so we're not fighting for justice or tolerance or progress or even faith. Who are you fighting for? Who do you love particularly? Who do you love specifically? Do you love Jesus? And loving Jesus, do you love others? Do you love the church? Not abstractly, but specifically the people in this room. Do you love them? Do you love your enemies? Fight for Jesus. Fight for others. And remember, fighting for someone doesn't require you fight against someone else. Not in the kingdom. That's how you become evil. I'm reminded of when Peter thought he was fighting for Jesus when he cut off the soldier's ear. And in Luke, Jesus exclaims, no more of this. 
It's such a wonderful line. No more of this. He's not just saying to Peter, he's saying that to all of us who would want to defend the faith by chopping off another person's ear. No more of this. We are done. No more fighting against, no more fear and intimidation. And then Jesus touches his ear and heals him. Jesus was arrested. He looked like he was losing, but he wasn't losing. Why? Because God's eyes are on the righteous and he hears their prayers. Jesus was never in any real danger. Right? They don't take my life. I lay down my life. During Jesus' life on earth, he was zealous for what was good. He was not afraid of his enemies or intimidated by them. He always answered with gentleness and respect. He did not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but he blessed others. He blessed his enemies, meaning that he blessed us. 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was fighting for what he loves. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And we love because he first loved us. This is the reason for the hope that is in us. This is the reason for the fight that is in us. And it's a reason worth fighting for. Let's pray.